I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I have a conversation with Lauren Baer. Lauren is a former congressional candidate for Florida's 18th congressional district and a foreign policy expert who served as an official in the Obama administration, also as a senior advisor to secretaries of state Hillary Clinton and John Kerry. And Lauren joins me to discuss President Biden's foreign policy strategy, particularly his strategy in dealing with North Korea and Russia. We talk about how President Biden's approach differs from Trump's. And here's a hint, the difference is stark. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Lauren Baer. Lauren Baer, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me back again. So first things first, um, Trump is gone. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, he is. So so we can start there. He's gone. Well, for the most part, he's gone, Um, which I think is probably one of the most significant improvements we could have to our foreign policy, honestly. Look, I mean, I, I think it's an it's an improvement across the board, um, and certainly with him, you know, not only out of office but off social media, there's been a a pleasant quiet um, over the past couple of weeks uh, to accompany the return to normalcy, uh, which I for one have appreciated. You know, for the past several years, our foreign policy has really suffered, right? Especially you know in relation to Russia. If I could get your take on what Biden's approach and how it would differ in foreign policy to to Trump's and how they both handle Russia. Sure. I mean, so so let's, I guess, start by stepping back and, and looking at things big picture. Uh, Trump touted this so-called America first approach as his approach to, to foreign policy. But what America first really meant in practice was that Trump turned away from our alliances he cozied up to dictators and strong men. He sort of s- turned up his nose at, at multilateralism, pulled out of international agreements, uh, stopped promoting U.S. values like democracy and, and human rights abroad, and, and actually left the United States um, in a very isolated position globally, and, and certainly not in the leadership role that we've been accustomed to seeing the United States in um, basically since since the end of, of World War II. And so what you're going to see out of the Biden administration, um, I expect what he, he promised on the campaign trail and what we've started to see coming together uh, since he, he took office is an entirely different approach, one that understands the importance of multilateralism, one that understands the importance of our longstanding alliances uh, such as as NATO, an approach that um, really is going to put democracy and and human rights and values back at the center of of U.S. foreign policy and, and an approach that is going to involve standing up to America's foes in the world. And and foremost among them um, is Vladimir Putin of Russia. And, you know, I think what we've seen in in the very first phone call that President Biden had uh, with Putin is a a totally different approach uh, from Donald Trump. There there was no more kowtowing. There there was no more uh, prostrating himself um, in in front of a, a foreign authoritarian. Um, instead, what we we saw President Biden do was call out Russia's misdeeds over the last uh, many years, their uh, election interference, both in 2016 and in 2020, their uh, hacking um, that we saw most recently in the, the massive solar winds hack, the, the bounties that they allegedly put on the heads of U.S. soldiers, um, and also their complete disregard for international norms, including uh, human rights norms in their own country, uh, shown most recently through uh, the detention of um, Navalny. 
And so what I expect from Biden is is a much stronger stance on on Russia, one that recognizes a, a limited window um, for cooperation, for example, in the uh, extension of the New START treaty that was just signed, but one that, that stands firmly against Putin when his actions uh, threaten the national security interests of the United States. So I'm curious as to whether you have any ideas, as to, and I want to keep going in the direction of what Biden is going to do and what the Biden administration is going mm-hmm. to do, but I'm just really curious about Trump because it, I feel like he came into office with kind of of philosophy. Now, mind you, you know, you know, aside from his proclivity for criminality, you know, one of his biggest flaws, I think, is that he's just not well suited to handle anything in relation to foreign policy. I mean, foreign policy is really hard. And he's, you know, kind of an incurious person, right? He's not really interested in the world. But he did come in with this kind of leaning towards authoritarianism and away from our allies. And do we have any idea as to why? Well, look, I mean, I think if we were to sort of dip into the psychology of Donald Trump a little bit, it's very clear um, that he is someone who admires um, the use of, of brute force and power. Um, he saw weakness in adherence to rules and norms and saw strength in foreign leaders like Vladimir Putin, um, who uh, put themselves <laughs> above all else uh, and uh, ruled uh, in the way they wanted, sort of uh, rules and, and norms, you know, be damned. And, and that's, that's why I think we saw, you know, an approach from him, uh, President Trump, um, that, that's so different than what we've seen from really any modern uh, American president, because, uh, you know, in Putin and in another strongman leaders, uh, President Trump, in a way, I think, saw the kind of leader that, that he himself aspired to be. And at the same time, he was doing everything within his power um, to undermine those parts of the U.S. government. Um, that could have provided a, a more informed foreign policy. We saw under President Trump a complete gutting of the State Department, starting with with Rex Tillerson and continuing under uh, Mike Pompeo, a, a disdain um, for the career civil and foreign servants who are experts in uh, international relations and really understand uh, our bilateral and multilateral relationships inside out. And, and this real desire to kind of go it alone uh, based on his gut and, and lean into his instincts, um, which were always seem to be to, to um, a- a- admire and, and bend to the, the worst examples uh, of world leaders, um, not the best. Yeah, it's interesting that you say you said to go with his gut, because I do feel like he had kind of he instinctively knew who would warm to him and who wouldn't. Right. And he had an admiration for these kind of strong men types. So that kind of makes sense to me. Can you tell me what is in the New START Treaty under President Biden? Um, So, so, I mean, basically what we're seeing here is um, an extension of of a non-proliferation agreement. And, uh, you know, this, uh, if you kind of take a step back and you you go back to the the Cold War, 
um, and the fear that existed at that time um, with uh, nuclear weapons building up on on both sides. The the thought um, that one of them could be deployed by either the United States or at the time the USSR. And, and part of what got us out of that situation were agreements um, that set limitations on uh, weapons development and in use. And then, you know, going back to to Donald Trump, um, what we saw from from his administration was was a real non-interest in renewing these agreements. He didn't really see the the value of that. Um, but but all of our other differences uh, with, with Russia, notwithstanding, it, it's these these basic arms control agreements um, that have allowed uh, a degree of stability. Um, since the the Cold War, uh, you know, it's it's the reason students in, in American el- elementary schools no longer do uh, nuclear attack drills, you know, in, in terms of their emergency, you know, safety preparedness. And so, what I think it signals that that we've seen this this treaty extension, you know, in the very earliest days uh, of the Biden administration, is an understanding um, that that despite everything else, we've got to um, ensure that there's not going to be a nuclear proliferation on top of that um, and that it's in our interest, our, our, our very strong national security interest to ensure that, that we're not um, falling back into another nuclear arms race. Right. And it's interesting that President Biden knew immediately. And that, I think that goes to his you know, more sophisticated approach to foreign policy, where before I think there was just an absence of understanding a lot of these things. He probably doesn't. Trump, again, probably didn't really understand the history behind that. Right. Um, yeah, I'm just I mean, assuming. I mean, look, there was a, a, a total um, lack of interest in, in, in history, um, in, in details. And I think there was kind of a, a knee jerk disdain for anything um, that had been done by anyone before him. And, and the result of that was, was just a, a, a tearing up and, and a stepping away from so many international agreements, old and new, um, that served the United States interests. Um, Trump simply did not see the value in multilateral cooperation. And, and I think what, what Biden and his team recognize um, is we live in a big, interconnected, complex world. And there are problems um, from, you know, arms control to to climate change, um, uh, you know, to, to any number uh, of, of other things that we can only solve if we uh, if we work together. And so I think we're going to see a real leaning back in to, to global uh, cooperation. Yeah. And like I said, foreign policy is hard. <laughs> so, so at the very least, you know, you have to be curious about it. But anyway, um, do you remember when President Obama left office and, you know, everyone made a big deal about his transition meeting that he had with Trump? Right. Mm-hmm. And reportedly, one of the things he said to Trump was that North Korea is going to be your biggest, hardest foreign policy challenge. Right. And, you know, and and I'm not really sure what happened. I know early on, you know, Trump went over and, you know, he had some meetings, something that, you know, Obama, President Obama wasn't willing to do. They exchanged some letters, you know, some <laughs> some very friendly letters. And then there was kind of silence. And I'm not really sure what happened there. And I'm curious as to if you know what happened and what we can expect from Biden, President Biden in that respect. Sure. So what I think the the North Korea example um, indicates, which is actually very similar to, to Russia, is a lot of the time when Trump thought 
um, that that he was actually playing a strong hand. Um, he was actually getting played, and you know the the one thing um, that that Kim Young Un wanted more than anything was the validation um, and the credibility that would come from meeting face to face with a United States president. And there was a reason that that in all of the negotiations around North Korea before um, that that wasn't granted to, to him because it, it was perceived of as something, the kind of concession that would only be given if if North Korea undertook some some really substantial reforms and, and some real efforts to limit um, their the, their development of, of nuclear capabilities. Instead, what what Donald Trump effectively did uh, was was give um, Kim everything he wanted without him having to do anything. And, you know, there was a, a nice photo op around it. And what we saw in the aftermath, um, what was Kim going back to doing exactly what he'd been doing uh, before, um, continuing to develop North Korea's nuclear weapons capabilities in a manner that is certainly threatening to our allies and North Korea's neighbors um, in Asia, but but that also you know has the potentially potential to be a real security risk to Americans um, on American soil, and and so again I I think what we we saw in that approach is that you know Trump's instinct that if he did something different that it, that it would change things up that it would lead to a different outcome um that's not what happened at all um I- instead what happened is, is that Kim um just like Putin ended up getting what he wanted um and the United States was was really left with nothing to show for it in return right and i find that a bit scary because in both cases in Russia and in North Korea after he, you know, had these conciliatory meetings and, you know, everything kind of went quiet, you know, like they were both fine. North Korea, we didn't hear much about that anymore. And it's because they got what they wanted. And of course, Trump went around and he touted, you know, oh, because I'm just really good at this. Right. And, you know, I did something that Obama couldn't do. And of course, that was, you know, like you said, farthest from the truth. But what bothers me is that we may see the fallout from those failures, you know, years from now. You know, I, I think that um, on some level is is true. Um, but on the other hand, you know, I don't want to at all um, diminish the, the capability of this administration to actually change directions um, and, and take our, our foreign policy back to a position of, of strength. Um, you know, if you look at the the people that Joe Biden has nominated, those that have been confirmed already, those that are awaiting confirmation, what it signals is that his approach to, to foreign policy is going to restore American leadership on the world stage, that it's not going to involve bending to dictators um, and authoritarians, and that he's appointing the kind of people with the real depth of knowledge um, and actual diplomatic experience that we can expect um, different outcomes in, in terms of the way the United States um, interacts in the world. And at, at the same time that he's doing this at the, the senior most levels, he's, he's also taking real steps 
um, to do things like rebuild um, the State Department and, and it, its workforce from the, the ground up. And, and I think it's a really excellent signal to to anyone who watches foreign policy that, that Biden's first trip to a cabinet agency, this is going to happen next Monday, is going to be an appearance at the State Department to make a speech about his foreign policy. And what that signals uh, by going to state instead of going to the Department of Defense, instead of going to the CIA, is that Joe Biden is putting diplomacy back at the center of our foreign policy and that he believes that uh, all of the experts uh, at the State Department from uh, Secretary of State Tony Blinken um, on down to the most junior desk officers um, have a role to play in restoring American leadership. So I, for one, actually have have pretty high expectations um, in terms of what we can do uh, over the next four years to to restore um, America's leadership position um, on the world stage. No, you're absolutely right. And what am I thinking? Of course, he is going to be hamstrung by whatever Trump did. I mean, he has a really sophisticated team I'm talking about President Biden now. And I would imagine that, you know, his philosophy would be kind of very similar to Obama's approach. How different would Obama's approach and Biden's approach be, you know, since they were in yeah. the same administration? Right. So, so I mean, like, look, I, I think one thing that we need to recognize here is Joe Biden has um, a real depth of experience in foreign policy that that predated his service in the Obama administration. He was for years the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. His experience in foreign policy is a big part of the reason why Barack Obama chose him um, as his his running mate. And so, you know, Joe Biden brings to the presidency an understanding and, and also relationships globally that go back, uh, you know, not just to the Obama administration, but but decades before that. And I and I think that's going to serve him well. Um, but also, when we compare the Obama administration and the Biden administration, we're really talking about uh, you know a very changed world. Um, Joe Biden is is inheriting a, a really tricky situation here. I, I would say uh, more difficult a situation you know that that any president uh, or the most difficult situation that any American president has inherited in decades. And, and I say that knowing full well that you know Obama inherited the Great Recession because what, what Joe Biden is is walking into is a, a global pandemic on top of a, a recession, on top of a climate crisis, on on top of a, a racial justice crisis domestically. And, and that's a lot to to deal with at, at once. And, and what it's going to require is a degree of sophistication from Joe Biden in addressing the, the global elements of, of those crises, because dealing with the pandemic um, is going to require international cooperation. Dealing with the climate crisis requires international uh, cooperation. Stabilizing the global economy requires international cooperation. And even restoring U.S. credibility to speak about things like human rights and democracy on the world stage requires us uh, addressing our, our own checkered history um, here at home with, with issues like racial justice. So, uh, you know, I, I think Joe Biden is walking into a challenging situation. But what I expect to see from him is just leveraging that decades of experience that he has to get the best out of our allies and our alliances so that we can you know, tackle these problems head on. So, so back to Russia and what's been in the news lately. 
Who is Alexei Navalny? I know he, uh, you know, he's an opponent of Putin's. He has just been sentenced, I think, to several years. But can you just give us a quick, short history of who he is and what's happened? Sure. So, so uh, Alexei Navalny is probably the the most well known um, opposition figure in Russia. Um, interestingly, he's he's by training a, a real estate uh, attorney, but rose to, to prominence actually um, on YouTube by starting to post videos um, that were exposing corruption within the, the Russian um, system and within the Russian state. And why we've seen him in the headlines over the past year is because back in August, Putin did to Navalny what he has, has done to so many of his vocal uh, opponents. Um, he poisoned him. Um, he he tried to to kill him um, with a with a nerve agent while he was on it on an aircraft and. Navalny was then uh, evacuated to Germany in order to uh, be, receive treatment um, and, and recover, and, and, and somewhat miraculously, uh, he survived. Um, but Navalny was actually on parole in, in Russia for some some bogus charges that had been levied against him from a handful uh, of years before, and the Russian state kept calling him uh, to make uh, court appearances while he was away in in Germany. So there was essentially a, a warrant out for his arrest for for failure to appear in court. And what Alexei Navalny did quite courageously was voluntarily choose to return to Russia. He, he got on a plane um, knowing full well that, that when it touched down on, on tarmac in Russia, that he would be arrested, that he would be tried, um, and that he would likely be convicted and, and sent back to, to jail. Um, but what I think Navalny also knew was that Russia was at a point where this act of martyrdom on his part would also um, spark uh, motivation, um, would, would bring out the opposition in, in ways that, that we hadn't seen in, in years in Russia. And that's exactly what happened. And so over the last several weeks since Navalny returned, we've seen these massive uh, street protests in, in Russia, not only in Moscow, but stretching across the entire country. They have been met um, with with massive resistance, a huge number of arrests um, by the, the police force. But what we're starting to see from, from this whole experience is, is you know, chinks in, in the armor um, that, that Putin's grasp on power um, might not be uh, quite as strong as he, he thought it was. And, you know, while I wouldn't expect immediate changes coming from this in terms of further democratization in, in Russia, I think what we're we're starting to see are signs of an opposition movement that, that could move us towards greater change in the years to come. What do we know about the Russian hacks, right? The hacking into our, you know, solar winds and hacking into the US government. There are several dozen agencies or, you know, government networks that, that were hacked into. What do we know about that, the breadth of it and what the Biden administration is going to do about it? So I think what's terrifying about the solar winds hack is both what we know and what we don't know um, at this point. So what we what we do know is that uh, Russia was able to 
enter uh, the networks of, of several government agencies uh, and Fortune 500 companies through software provided to those agencies, to those companies, by a company called called SolarWinds. So it was basically a kind of backdoor way of getting into their systems. Um, what they effectively got uh, was almost 20,000 users to, to download what they thought was a software update, which instead allowed Russian state actors a backdoor um, into everything inside of those systems. So, so that's what we know. Um, what we don't know is the full range of agencies uh, or companies that were hacked and the full scope of information that the Russians were able to gain access to. What we also don't know is whether they're still in there snooping around. So what we can tell you know, with certainty from this is that the Russian government has been made um, privy to uh, state secrets, to sensitive intelligence to personal information about U.S. government employees, to the intellectual property of prominent U.S. companies. And what all of this collectively does is give Russia leverage, leverage to blackmail individuals potentially, um, leverage to impact uh, how the U.S. government operates, leverage potentially to disrupt critical infrastructure. Um, we don't know uh, the full scope of, of what happened, but the ramifications I expect will be felt for years. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. All of this happened. Um, everyone was expecting Russia to try to, uh, you know, hack in to um, the U.S. election systems in advance of the 2020 elections. And while all of our eyes uh, were on our election infrastructure, instead, uh, Russia was pretty much running rampant through every other part of, of the U.S. government and, and economy. And, you know, big picture, what this shows is that the shift has really been been made from from kinetic warfare to to cyber warfare as one of the biggest threats that we face as a country, that it's an area where we have to you know, display a huge amount of vigilance and, and make huge investments, um, not only because of the threat from Russia, but because of the threat from so many other nefarious state actors who would like to do the exact same thing. And, and that it's going to require a real cooperation across government and the private sector, because it's not just um, that foreign actors are targeting one or the other. Um, it, it's a both and um, scenario. So I think overall, this is, is a very telling incident in terms of the uh, where the risks really lie in the national security space for the United States going forward. And we should expect this story to continue to unfold um, over the coming months. Wow. Well, you know, I'll have to have you back on <laughs> once we it. know how they're going to leverage this. I mean, this is kind of scary and interesting. But um, anyway, Lauren Bear, thank you so much. And I always learn so much when I talk to you. So thank you for coming on and taking time to talk to me today. Jen, thanks for having me. It's always such a pleasure. Hope we can do it again soon.